Hi everyone. If you like what you've been hearing, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon. That's H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. The Patreon's really the lifeblood of the podcast. It lets me dedicate the time that I need to play the games, to talk to our guests, to really set everything up and, and make everything as sharp as it is. Um, without it, uh, no cartridge really wouldn't exist the way it does today. If you don't like monthly pledges, I totally get it. Uh, there's also paypal.me backslash Hagelbon, and we can try and figure something out there. Or you can email me at nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I will try and answer your emails as quickly as I can. Thanks so much for your support, and enjoy the show. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hagelbond on Twitter, and I have with me today uh, one of, actually, I think we've been friends online for uh, probably going on five years now. Uh, I think probably you were one of the first people to follow me on Twitter, which means I was definitely one of the first people uh, to follow you back, um, or vice versa. Uh, Malcolm Pierce of Woodsy Studios, uh, he's online at uh, at Redbird Menace. And he's uh, also on the podcast right now. Malcolm, thanks so much for being here. Uh, thank you. This is a sort of a long-time listener, first-time caller situation, which means <laughs> that I should probably make some you know, reference to sports transactions or something like that. So yeah. how about Andrew McCutcheon, right? Yeah. I'm, I, you know what? I, I, apparently people in Philadelphia are, are sad about, about the Phillies getting Andrew McCutcheon because it means they might not get Bryce Harper, but uh, I think it's cool. I I like Andrew McCutcheon a lot. I've always wanted him to be a Philly, and um, I don't know. Seems seems pretty fun. Seems like a cool a cool transaction. As a Cardinals fan, I assume you have seen more than your fair share of of him just like ruining your day. Oh yeah, man. I I, I both love and hate Andrew McCutcheon because I hate him because he was a Pittsburgh Pirate, but he's also a really fun player and he's really awesome. Um, I would say that I completely understand your position because that was my position approximately one week ago when the Cardinals acquired Paul Goldschmidt. And everyone's like, well, now they're out on Bryce Harper. And I'm like, you know what? Neither the Phillies or the Cardinals should be out on Bryce Harper right now. But we are totally off topic, aren't we? Well, it's OK. There's no on topic. Uh, we could just we could just do the whole. Uh, let's just do the whole episode on uh, on baseball and see how long people hang in there. Um, yeah, so let me tell you about the Drew Robinson for Patrick Wisdom trade today. I'll, I will shut up. I will shut wow. the fuck no, up. No, I mean, I was actually. Can I say? Are you are you bummed about that trade? Is that like is that trade a? Oh no, no. Actually, you know, it is. These are a couple of basically quad A players. Um, Patrick Wisdom was a really interesting story because he was really basically stuck at AAA for like a year or two. Uh, unable to get out because of Matt Carpenter. And right. then he came up and he had good 50 good at bats. But if you look at their history, they're basically the same player. One of them's left-handed, one of them's right-handed. They both kill AAA pitching. So, yeah, let's just see, you know, uh, whatever. 
Yeah, I was wondering about that because I, I saw how I saw how good he had been like over those fifty at bats, and I was thinking like, man, I don't know. Like our Cardinals fans going to be really irritated that they gave up on him so fast, and I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but it doesn't seem like you are, which I admire yeah. because it's so easy to be frustrated uh, about anything in baseball. It's just like a, it's a <laughs> it's a very good personality trait to just be like, yeah, look, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, Patrick Wisdom was not going to make or break the Cardinal season, and and neither will Drew Robinson. So it's fine, and, and this will actually keep them from trading for Dan or uh, from getting Daniel Descalso back in free agency. So I'm very happy about that. I do not want to see that guy again. Isn't he like? Hasn't he just always been a Cardinal forever? Like that's like, is there a world in which Daniel Descalso is not a Cardinal? Uh, that was that world was 2018, mm. and Daniel Descalso was a Diamondback, and he was good for the first time in his career, and I hate him for it. Well, that's fair. Um, I, I yeah. Well, now we're off topic because I'm just gonna get I'm just gonna ramble about Daniel Descalso. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about um, All right. So uh, aside from uh, the car- aside from making the Cardinals a uh, giving the Cardinals a human face, let's say. Um, which I appreciate you and many of my other friends for because I've uh, I've come to the opinion that disliking the Cardinals is just kind of like a, a hipster thing to do in some ways and that, you know, they can be a hateable team, but they aren't any more evil than any other team. Um, what else yeah, do you do? Okay, go ahead. Hating the Cardinals is like when you like IPAs, which is like, yeah, IPAs are great beers, but when you loudly announce it at the bar, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty correct. It's just like it's it's not. I, I'm not entirely sure it's completely necessary to be a a hardcore anti Cardinals guy anymore. Um, yeah, but so- not when you can be a hardcore anti Cubs guy. Which you know what they went to the White House a second time to visit Donald Trump. That's pretty bad. I I do remember yeah. that, and that 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 bummed me out a lot. Um, I was very happy when the Cubs won because I had like I didn't I didn't adopt them so much as I adopted the um, the White Sox when I lived in Chicago. I didn't really adopt either, and partially that's just because the White Sox were so bad. Um, but since I already had an NL team, I thought, well, you know, there's really no reason to to <laughs> pretend like I care about the Cubs more than I care about the Phillies. Um, but the White Sox were my team for like my sort of Chicago team. And, you know, it was fine. But uh, I lived so close to Wrigley when I was in Chicago that it was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm happy for them. And I was, you know, it's it definitely. Made oh, me yeah. happy. But them visiting the White House twice just to see Trump. I, yeah. I mean, that that kind of broke my heart. Yeah. Yeah. Really unfortunate. But again, we have gone way off topic. And let me say I have no ill will towards Cubs fans who are grown up Cubs fans and like, yeah, no, I get it. I'm a fan of a team that does shitty things too sometimes, but Hey, let's all admit it. (laughs) So aside from being a a sort of long suffering baseball fan in some ways and very short suffering in others, given the, the Cardinals uh, extremely good success uh, over the past, let's say decade, um, you do what? I'm gonna let you take take lead on this, as I promised. I want you to describe uh, what what else what else it is that you do. Well, I'm one half of the video game studio Woodsy Studio. Um, there, it's me and my partner, and we make visual novels or adventure games, depending on what you want to call them. Um, it's kind of a you know dispute 
sort of, of of what is an adventure game, what is a visual novel when it comes down to it. A lot of people say, oh, it is about country of origin. A lot of people say it is about the kind of interaction that it is. I think that they are the same thing, uh, personally. I think that for the most part, you know, you get, uh, a, you look at a lot of adventure games, they adopt a lot of what visual novels are and vice versa. And I think the best example, of course, is Phoenix Wright, which is mm. easily considered both. Um, yeah. Uh, but we make those kind of games. And uh, I am the a, a programmer and writer and artist on it. Uh, my partner is also a programmer, writer, artist. Uh, she does the music, and I do sort of the sort of forward-facing PR stuff for the most part. But otherwise, we basically do everything down the middle. Uh, and uh, yeah, we've got a we basically release a game every year. Our flagship is this Echoes of the Fae series. It's a basically a uh, mix between fantasy and detective stories. Uh, cool. Detective, the main character is a private eye in a fantasy world, uh, and that's what we are. Uh, we released this year, and next year we are co- going forward with a mix between a, a '90s horror game and an Atome visual novel uh, that leans very heavily into some anti-capitalistic uh, themes. Yeah, and I'm definitely going to want you to tell me a little bit more about that uh, because we've talked about it a little bit, and it sounds very cool. Um, so when you say visual novel, uh, just for people who haven't played it, like, I know we've talked about it a little bit on the show. We've definitely talked about, um, had a full boyfriend, I know, um, which is, uh, a joy, but also as, as, um, our mutual friend, uh, Leo Kitty has pointed out, um, it's also not really a game that makes much sense unless you already understand what visual novels are, um, so how would you describe like, you know, if, if, if like, you know, uh, let's say, let's say King's Quest is the, is the locus classicus for, um, for people's understanding of the adventure game, how would you describe, well, King's Quest or, uh, I don't know, Monkey Island or something like that. Um, how would you describe a visual novel? Like what is, what is the point of a visual novel? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned something like King's Quest or like Monkey Island because those are very, you know, bedrock games in North American game development. And um, there's nothing really like that that I think, especially an English audience, will perceive as the baseline for what a visual novel is. It's really easy to go to Phoenix Wright. It's really easy to go to Danganronpa. But those aren't all correct because they they, they really do take in a lot of um, – a lot of adventure game inspiration in those and puzzles and mini games and things like that. Ultimately, a visual novel is a game that is largely about the writing and uh, the sort of decision making and the interaction with characters within that game. And so you get a lot, most visual novels, the primary gameplay is you're watching character portraits on screen as they talk to your player character. And then eventually you make decisions uh, in most of them. Uh, that affect how the storyline goes. There are some where you don't even make decisions, that it is literally just almost kind of like a playable graphic novel. Uh, but for most, of, for most of these games, and the ones that we make especially, uh, there there's a big aspect of decision-making. And it's why sometimes when I'm talking to people who don't know what a visual novel is, I will describe what we do instead of saying visual novel as, you know what Telltale does? <laughs> well, people made a telltale game and and like like it, because we are we are definitely have that more 2d indie sensibility um it, it's a it's very similar in that you're making choices that affect how things develop but uh it's just differently presented 
uh, visual novels, I think, you know, they, they have a little bit of, they unfortunately have a little bit of a bad reputation uh, because of a lot, a lot of what comes over from Japan, you know, it's the more adult games, which I have no problem with. That's fine as long as they're, you know, well-made. But you think of visual novels and you, you think of, oh, these kind of, you know, I don't know, the, the kind of less... Um, prestigious, you know, or dating sim kind of games, which is unfortunate because I think that that there's this whole uh, field out there of, of of games that are really focused on telling a story rather than um, anything else. And I, that's what we like to make, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, do you think? Do you think like? I mean, here's a a kind of leading question, but do you think that Steam uh, has been uh, a good thing or a bad thing for visual novels? Because like on one hand you know, there's way more of the, the kind of like poorly made adult visual novels now, but there's also things like Steins Gate, right. That like have, I've, you know, you see Steins Gate getting like game of the year nods or, or uh, not nods necessarily, but at least certainly like attention from Western media um, in ways that I don't think um, visual novels would have in the past. And, and in part, just because like it's available now because of platforms like steam where, the visual novel can pick up popularity. I mean, do you think it's been a boon for the visual novel or, or like something that's held it back? I think that on, on a lot of levels, it's really just a double-edged sword. Um, I think that it is really good that platforms like Steam and such uh, are open to pretty much anything at this mm-hmm. point. Now, there's still some question about what Steam will do about adult content, and it's been something that they've gone back and forth on Several times, it seems like. Uh, but otherwise, it's pretty much a platform that is open to anybody who's willing to put themselves on the platform. Right. Uh, that said, uh, that means that there is no distinguishing between a really, really like hastily put together game and one that has a lot of care put into it. And I think that that's, that's led to a problem for people who don't put in the effort to find the good stuff. Because you immediately start to look through stuff and you find a lot of, you know, stuff you wouldn't like. Well, yeah, because the algorithm um, doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, it's not the quality <laughs> the, of the work. Yeah, that's that's 2018 for you. The algorithm does not care. <laughs> I suppose it is 2018, but it's also true that uh, we never should have expected the algorithm to care. Um, yeah. So I, I'm curious, how does that impact you as a creator? Like, what what about what do you do about what do you do about uh, about the fact that you um, you know, you can't control what people see, but you're putting a ton of time into your visual novel. It's not one of those ones like where you just like have a couple of hastily drawn boobs and hope people pick it up as a result, right? Like how do you how do you basically like make sure people know that? Is there a way to do it? Is there do you have a strategy for that? Or is that just something that is kind of like, you know, hopefully hopefully it comes across, but it's kind of uh, up to up to the player i guess i'd say well well our strategy is is pretty simple on on monday we pray to the christian god <laughs> on tuesday we pray to allah on 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 wednesday we start to go through the hindu pantheon it gets really complicated there you know honestly like this, that totally makes sense and uh and i like it mm-hmm. and um yeah no uh, you know what um i'm sold uh 
I see what, you know, like bloody boobs or whatever uh, game is not um, is not doing so hot on Steam needs to do now. Yeah, yeah, no, they they need they need to get religious and then to get to every kind of religious. Um, but no, uh, really what it comes down to is 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 we just hope that that by by creating something that is more unique and and more like, you know, intentional uh, that that we will eventually get, you know, and we it, it's you know, it, there's there was this I think it's was it Spiderweb Studios, I think I am butchering this that that has has been giving these sort of talks about indie games and saying the big thing to do is you just keep releasing games and you build mm-hmm. an audience and that is our strategy is just you know you never heard of us you may never have heard of a spiderweb studio game but they have you know 10 15 games on steam that they have put out over the last 10 or 15 years and that sustains them and that's that's our strategy is that once you've played one of our games you at least know what we are and if you like us you will hopefully keep coming back um, and that's sort of what we go for so what distinguishes your visual novel from say like you know what people would expect from a visual novel um well the main there there were a few things um i, I was going to say the main thing and then i was going to go off on this whole like talk that i had prepared for like conventions but this isn't a convention it's not uh so no you know i don't i don't need to sell you on on this in the same way that i generally do it's true um uh, what 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 sets our stuff apart is first off you know we are first and foremost before anything else we are storytellers okay. and we care about what the story is about these games we uh, both of our undergraduate degrees are we both have undergraduate degrees from um, USC in screenwriting oh great um, uh, and and we have this whole big background of like cinematic storytelling and that is what we care about doing and we wish we could have a world where we could make a tv show with our ideas but to be completely honest that's just not feasible like we can pitch it we we have pitched it (laughs) we've tried um but we realize that we can actually tell stories like the stories we want to tell in games uh in games that we make just by ourselves or with a little help and I think that's what we are going for is like basically, you know, we uh, it sounds terrible because there's so much bad about the whole prestige TV movement. That's, you know, it makes me a little uncomfortable about what that means. But basically, we're trying to tell that, those kind of stories, but in games. Interesting. So um, if like just to draw it and I know you, you just said you're uncomfortable with the metaphor, but it, it's an easy metaphor and it's kind of helpful, I think, for people who don't necessarily necessarily understand visual novels because you know what i've learned about visual novels just from uh, the past over the past few years is that there is such a rich history like i sort of understood them as you know uh, effectively games that were loosely just kind of soft porn and uh they are not that that's uh that is not really what they are they're kind of i was saying this actually on i don't know if it'll come out before or after this but i talked with a um, with Paul Walker Emig of the um, of uh, Utopian Horizons podcast about the um, <laughs> about uh, Return of the Oberdin, which is a little like a visual novel and a little not like it reminds me of uh, of like the interactive novels that uh, theorists kept talking about uh, way way back in the day, and in a way, this like the specter of the uh, of the interactive novel is something that I think haunts a lot of indie games, and that also haunts the uh, the visual novel. So like if your stuff is the kind of, uh, let's say, let's say you're the deadwood of, uh, of, of visual novels. Oh, I'll give you a good prestige TV show. Um, unless you don't like deadwood, in which case I'm sorry. Uh, but 
Deadwood's fine. If you guys are the Deadwood of 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 uh, of this, like, what would be sort of like the the network TV of of uh, visual novels? Like, how would we understand the kind of like meat and potatoes of of this genre? Well, I I honestly believe that we don't have that yet, mm. and we should. And actually, I would probably enjoy making those games as well. Like we, we uh, on some level, maybe I would be willing to even cop to say that we are probably maybe somewhere between the Deadwood and the, um, you know, CSI New York cool. of visual novels because I really think that there is a a place there for that sort of stuff where it is a you know good stories or at least interesting stories, well plotted stories uh, that are comforting and that are fun and that that get just sort of draw people in and and i really now hate that i used a cop show because i've got my own issues with cop shows i was gonna say congratulations Um, on having gary sinise uh work in your game that's a that's a really big get oh man if gary sinise wants to work in our game if gary sinise listens to the no cartridge podcast come on gary sinise we got some rules for you i have really bad news about whether or not gary sinise listens to the podcast (laughs) Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, probably well, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, no. I, I think I think you know. I, I I my my reach is is to say that that we're trying to be the prestige TV stuff. But I think, in all honesty, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're trying to make is actually the network TV uh, drama. The difference, of course, being that um, we you know are very. Uh, uh, very aware and and interested in in you know promoting certain social good causes in our games, um, which of course uh, CIS and um, all the Law and Order shows probably would bulk at. Yeah, I mean certainly certainly any of the ones that are not the original one, and even even that probably is a bit more just like you know boilerplate liberalism than um, what you guys are doing. Um, so how does that, I mean, does that, does that, is that tricky in, in a video game genre? I mean, video games are um, classically understood as, as not a particularly uh, leftist genre. Um, is it hard to fit that into your narratives or, or do visual novels like provide a, a framework for you that, that is particularly, I don't know, effective that way, let's say. Well, I, I would, I would say that, that I, Think that the format that we're doing, which is basically largely just storytelling in 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 game format, uh, doesn't really hinder us in that way. And also, like you know, some of my concerns about how some games uh, further some pretty bad ideas um, just don't come up in visual novels because ultimately you're playing as whatever character the game has decided that you're playing as, and we tend to you know, and, and this is going to sound really funny because in a, I'll get to why this is funny in a second, but like we tend to try and feature um, people who are either oppressed or underrepresented in some fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, our latest game, you do play as an ex FBI agent, but there's a very good region reason for mm-hmm. it. And like, I've had to like think this through of how this works is basically, you know, she was somebody who was, you know, kind of new to the, the, the bureau and was, you know, possibly on the, the cusp of being disaffected. Uh, and then gets into the situation where she has to be law enforcement in this completely new world. Mm. And I, I've been, we've been trying to explore what that means uh, because she's ultimately the protagonist and the person you play as, but 
the role of law and order in the world is not necessarily a good one. And it's and and, and several of the paths explore why that's not so good. Huh. So I mean, how important is you know, classically speaking in like in like uh uh literary criticism or or just like storytelling in general, um, you know, the 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 balance between a um yeah, I'm trying to think of the way to say this, like a social cause or or a or a political claim and a story such as it is, um, is, is kind of like that's always something that I wouldn't say it's at odds, but it is it does become tricky, right? Um, you know, are you doing politics or are you doing a story is like a fair fair enough question to ask, even if it's a little dismissive or a little um oversimplistic. How do you balance uh story and and politics? Well, uh, we're writers, and and I think ultimately story comes first. Okay. But that said, we really want to make sure that the things that we are forwarding and the things that we are um, approving of in our story are are socially, you know, progressive mm-hmm. and good. Um, we almost always have, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier about how dating sims get this. There are about visual novels get this this stigma as dating sims, and you know, honestly. All of our visual novels have a certain aspect of romance to them, um, but we're always having, um, you know, both uh, homosexual and bisexual relationships in our games because we think that it's really important that that's represented mm-hmm. in the world. Uh, we don't think we see that enough in games. You know, you see the the sort of throwaway option in in certain you know triple uh, A games of oh well you could date this this person of the same gender as you or same sex as you, uh, but uh, we want to make that sure that that's front and center, and that is as as much of an option as the sort of traditional um, relationships. Yeah, and we are very strong about that. No, that's yeah. interesting, and I, especially because, like, especially because the um, like as you say, it is it is almost always so throwaway, which is to say, like, you know, you can make Shepard uh, bisexual, or you can make. Because, because, like you know, it's it's something where you could have a relationship with everyone in the crew. Uh, I don't know why Mass Effect is the one that's coming to mind, but it is. Um, you know, you could you could have whatever Shepard you have have a relationship with everyone in the crew because I don't know. I guess that's like more more appealing to a completist gamer. Um, but that's what it feels like. It feels as if it's like an excuse to get more options in the game, as opposed to like actually a an admission that like, yeah, okay, this character has like a particular um, motive or this character has a particular sexuality that's, you know, important to their character. Um, It's just kind of like a, you know, do you want to check this particular box off this time or not? Yeah. And that's definitely not what we want to do. We want to make sure that if, if the character is interested, if the player is interested in, in pursuing some sort of romance with a character, that it is as centered on them as it would be on any other character. We are very clear about that. Um, you know, what that does lead to, you know, is an interesting situation where, um, which, which we think about a lot, uh, which is that essentially all of our protagonists are bisexual, um, because of that option. Um, we 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 lean away from the whole thing in um you this is a thing that happens in a lot of games like Mass Effect and uh, Dragon Age where the NPCs are player sexual which means that no matter which gender they are you know they're into <laughs> I've never into heard one. that phrase, but uh, that, and, that yeah I mean that that's that's correct 
Yeah. Um, and we, we I, I personally really dislike that idea because I think that it, it robs sort of agency from, from that preference. And so we, we almost always have a character in the game that you can flirt with and who rejects you because either they're not into some part of you. And like, like that's a big thing for me that I like to put in stuff. Um, because it's important to me to to not to to recognize that not everybody in the world is just going to be like uh, frothing at the mouth to get into your pants, no right. matter who you are, uh, and and so that's a big thing we put in, and um, yeah, but but that does mean that our player characters tend to be bisexual. That's really easy. Uh, my partner and I are both bisexual, so of course we would do that. Um, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it, that, that, those are the kind of things that we make. Uh, but, but again, we've now gone off on this to, it's important to note that, that we are actually not making like those, those games where there are just a, a pair of anime breasts on screen and everything's great. We are actually trying to make, you know, important stories and romances that are interesting. Other yeah, than and that. I, but the, the romance angle is really interesting to me here because you think about something like a dating sim. Um, and you know, one of the reasons I really enjoyed, um, I, I mentioned earlier on like how to full boyfriend. And one of the reasons I really liked how to full boyfriend was because, um, you know, the romance was something, but you played a very particular character in how to full boyfriend. If people haven't played, you are like a human mm -hmm. at a, an all pigeon school. Um, and it's, it's very, it's very post-apocalyptic, um, as you find out as the game goes on. Uh, but the character you play is is a is this human who is like in this situation of being like the only person at an all pigeon school and you don't get to choose who that human is that human is like a girl who is i think like between 14 and 15 uh for whatever reason she's kind of interested in like dating or being romantic with these these birds um and that's it and there's something like so strange and compelling about playing a game as someone who is like very much not me, right? Like I am not a teenager. I'm not yeah. a woman. Um, I, you know, the, the pigeon thing is sort of not super important because that's played as a, obviously played as a joke. Um, but uh, how, like, one of the things, and, and you can just talk more about this. Like one of the things that I thought was so interesting about what you were saying about visual novels is that, um, you don't get to pick your character. Uh, your character is your character is who your character is. And, you know, some dating sims are probably different. They're much more self-insert. Um, but you're making games where, like, it's not about picking a character. It's about playing um, and, and embodying a story. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think there there's there's a a good place for games where you play as a self-insert character. And I think a lot of games benefit from that. Um, that's not what I'm particularly interested in making. Um, I prefer to just have a character you play as this character and the choices that you can make are limited to what those choices that character mm -hmm. would make and not what you would do. Um, that said, you know, like I think that there is so much importance in, in player agency in these games as well. So it's really a hard balance that we, we sort of fight with. Um, but Absolutely. Like, I think that it's really f one of the one of the best things that games can do as far as uh, compared to other art forms. And they put you in the seat or the shoes of a person who you are not and you make choices for that person. And, you know, no, no other f format of of 
of narrative can really do that outside of, say, maybe a choose-your-own-adventure novel, uh, which, of course, we always struggle with comparison against. Uh, but but I also embrace it to certain people, is I'll say that, yeah, it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure novel. You make choices that change how the narrative goes, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's a really interesting way of presenting yeah. narrative. Um, but you know, you you also hear that derogatorily thrown around about original novels. I mean, why do you think? Why do you think? Why do you think that the the adventure novel comparison is used in a derogatory way? Like, because I mean, people have enjoyed adventure novels. They're 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 you know enjoying some sort of mild academic uh, resurgence. Why do you think like? Why do you think people are uh, use the adventure novel as a way to like? denigrate as opposed to uh as a way to sort of advertise for lack of a better uh a more sort of like uh, civil analogy well i think that the reason is because the choose your own adventure novel as you know we all know it that whole series of novels that you know i think you're 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 about my age uh existed in our childhood was a art form for children and i think that that's that is the sort of um, you know, angle that is taken by people who want to denigrate this as a kind of game, um, which is not fair. Uh, you know, and, and we're, we're getting closer to talking about the other thing that I wanted to talk about, which is my belief that uh, when we talk about narrative and games, uh, we should acknowledge that pretty much all games have narratives and that, that all game design is on some level narrative design uh, to to, you know, 35 minutes into this start to make enemies. I mean, this is some hot takery. We're going to, we're Ian Bogost is going to be so angry. Um, another Boy, that's exactly what I wanted to say. Like, like appearing on a podcast, I feel like I'm contractually obligated to start beef with somebody who has written for the Atlantic. Here we go. He, he is, um, he's a strange figure on no cartridge. Cause he has definitely said he'd come on, but then, um, I mean, we're not friends or anything. So I think you forgot and then didn't, um, and he's definitely been talked about on here enough to uh, to warrant uh, to warrant being brought up. So I I am all for it. Please, uh, you know, subtweet or otherwise. Uh, I I think it's I think it's time you you started beef with the Invogost. Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's what I'm gonna do. It would it would be it's not subtweet it's sub podcast, which sounds like this this sort of thing you'd look up an urban, urban dictionary and immediately close <laughs> the link. Uh, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so so actually uh, honestly you know now that you brought him up let's just fucking go for it um this this was something i started to think about when he posted his oh games don't need stories article which as about 50 percent of the things published on the atlantic are uh the the headline is way more uh incendiary Absolutely. than the actual article uh like he had he had some interesting things to say about what narrative games do and the failings of narrative and narratives and games that i don't necessarily disagree with uh but however i do disagree with the idea that that games don't need narratives because I think all games have narratives. Um, I think that it is a strange position to take, uh, but I, it came sort of out of both reading that article and then you know it was back you know a couple years ago and I'm a millennial and of course a couple years ago I wanted to have a blog and yeah, I mean, why not? so I started. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> If you don't have a blog, who are you? Uh, my blog is at redbirdmenace.com. It has not been updated in over a year. Uh, but that said... Blogs were um, the original podcast, <laughs> after all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but I, I started to, to formulate this idea of like, 
Well, one of the big problems that we have uh, when talking about games, and I think this is actually kind of relevant to this time of year, which is game of the yeah. year time of year. I've been thinking a lot uh, about that. Is, so let's, yeah, let's definitely the, talk about it. Let's talk about game of the year. Let's let's okay. Game of the year is I don't know. I don't. Oh no, yeah. I don't have a firm um, game of the year. I've just been thinking a lot about the concept. It's Hitman too, but uh, let's keep going. Um, uh, the, the thing that that came up to me when I was doing this was that it's really hard to c- sort of categorize what games are, and that sounds like a really like oh, I'm making a very flighty statement. I have, you know, smoked a little bit too much tonight or something. Uh, but when you think about trying to say what is the thing that 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 sort of um, contains or or encompasses Pillars of Eternity and Guilty Gear and Monster Hunter and mm-hmm. Fortnite, and there's not a whole lot. There's really not much you can say to say, oh, these are all the same form of art. And, and I think movies and books have gotten away with like, oh, there's nonfiction, there's fiction, but in games there's, there's, it's all fiction pretty much. I, I don't know if anybody's made a nonfiction game. I there's don't know if they did. I think one's on, reach on out itch me. that, uh, um, Olivia was pointing me to the other day where like, uh, they're kind of like, um, dramatizations of like paintings or historical moments that are dramatized within painting. And like someone made a, like an adventure game. I mean, like, again, uh, you know, to to the credit of the of the uh, visual novel and adventure game genres, uh, someone made an adventure game out of them, right? Um, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, that's the closest I got, um, which is not quite the same, but I mean, not so far off, I suppose. Yeah, no, and, and that sounds that sounds cool as shit. I want to play those. <laughs> um, my point, <laughs> my point, sort of, is that when you try and like rank a bunch of games like all of those. Uh, it becomes sort of strange to say, oh, these are all the mm-hmm. same media. Mm-hmm. And so I, I got to thinking about what is it that makes a game? Um, and and I think there are a couple of easy answers. And the first answer is something having to do with interface, which is, oh, you're looking at a screen, you're controlling something, et cetera, et cetera. I, I just was not satisfied with that because when it comes down to it, um, Guilty Gear, for example – probably has more in common with tennis than it does with Pillars of Eternity. Yeah, that sounds right. And, and because it's about about a sort of exchange of very physical motions that create a, you know, situations that people can exploit. And and Pillars of Eternity has more in 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 common with Dungeons and Dragons than it does with 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 Guilty Gear and Fortnite has more in common with paintball than it does with any of those, and and so physicality and interface isn't really the way to mm-hmm. go, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And then I thought, like, like, like I think that the the default thing that most people go to is that games are. Uh, you know a game when you see it. To sort of you know, this is where I, my my law school goes in and yeah, my pornography, pornography, which is that. that <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that the whole definition of pornography that the Supreme Court put forth at one point was, I know it when I see it. And on some level, I'm not going to disagree with that, but I think that I dislike it because it leads to the, the, the part where people say, oh, Gone Home's not a game. Or they say, you know, various, especially visual novels, are not a game. Or they say anything that doesn't have that much interactivity is not a game. Because I think... When you say 
I know it when I see it, you open up to a subjectivity that lets in mm-hmm, exclusivity. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that. Yeah. Um, so I got to thinking and thinking about what, you know, from my background, what it was. And I realized that games almost ex- always are a good way or a tool or a set of context uh, for people to tell each other stories. Hmm. And and you even look at something like Street Fighter or something like Guilty Gear or something like chess. And these are, these are games that have no story to them. There just isn't any. But they provide rules and context and um, sort of limitations that allow the players to tell each other a story about two people or two armies fighting okay. a battle. And the, the the sort of the sort of core or root of this is that I think that you know humans like stories. We like telling each other stories. We like being told stories, but we're all kind of shit at it. Yes. <laughs> like, have you ever like like been at a at a at a uh, you know on a date or a social function and and the other person says, "Oh, tell me something," and you freeze up because of course you can't tell them something. Because of course, uh, yeah. I mean, I've been, I, I had a friend who used to. She would always ask me to tell her a story, and I oh, was terrible at it. It would just be like, "Wow, it's, I don't know what I could tell you." <laughs> what sort of question is that? Like, yeah. you know, it's just it's it, it's hard. It's hard to come up with a story or an idea or you know something interesting to say off the bat off the top of your head. It's so fucking broad. Like we we can't just go forward and say, "Oh, I'm going to tell you a story about something," because we're all kind of bad at it. Uh, even as somebody whose literal position at this the game studio is to write stories, if you sat me down and said, tell me a story, I would freeze up and, like, run for the door. Right. Um, but what games do, and I think this is this is largely true, and of course there are exceptions, there are always exceptions, is they give a framework and a context and rules and tools for people to tell each other or themselves a story. And so the, the best example I can think of this, and I think this is the other thing that, that, that sort of triggered this thought in me, was a game, a, a tabletop RPG called Follow. Have you heard of it? No. Uh, it's, it's, it's by Ben Robbins, who also made Microscope. Okay. And it is a game where you basically set up a mission. Uh, most of the time I've heard people do heists or things like that. Uh, if anybody wants to hear basically a bunch of people who've never played Follow play Follow, I believe that the Giant Beast cast Holiday Special 2, the second one, is the one where they play Follow. And that's Austin Walker and um, and the Beast cast people playing Follow. And it's amazing. Cool. Uh, but Sounds what this good. is, is it's a, it's a, it's a game where you basically go around the table and you each make a scene and you just tell it and there are certain rules to it and then at the end of each round everybody decides whether the this part of the mission has failed or succeeded and then everybody has to tell the story of how it fails or succeeds and this provides just enough framework for a bunch of people who might not be great at just telling a story outright to to make a awesome like little you know three hour long fiction vignette uh, just by themselves, hmm. and, and that's so cool to me. And I realized that 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 scales down in, in a lot of ways to games. Um, the 
the one that, that stands out to me especially and actually the one that I teach is um, Overwatch King's Row. Have you played much Overwatch? Yeah, yeah, I know. I, yeah. I, I know, the, I know the, the level you're talking about for sure. Um, so as I said, I am, have a screenwriting background. Uh, and Overwatch King's Row especially, but a lot of Overwatch maps, a good round of it can be very easily broken down into the three-act structure of a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, because, you know, you start off, oh, it's the the sort of uh, starting point, and you are meeting all your, your people you're going to be working with in this little minute where you're, you're about to attack. And then there's exposition where you all discover what the enemy players have. Then, you know, there's the grabbing the the platform or the, 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 the payload that you move forward with. And uh, that's an inciting incident and it breaks off in the, the second act. And I could go forward with this, but the big one, the big one that I always talk about is that um, in at USC and in various film schools where they teach for the three-act structure is Star Wars. Because okay. Star Wars is a perfect three-act structure. It may not be the gre- greatest you know, movie, the first Star Wars, but it is... Yeah. No, I mean, it's, yeah, it is an ideal three-act structure. It's, it's fairly perfect. And what does Star Wars end with but a medal ceremony? And what does Overwatch end with but a medal ceremony? <laughs> medal ceremony, yeah, of course. They just grabbed that and they took it. And it works so well as denouement, which is the, the stage of the three-act structure that that would be in. Because just like, oh, we're examining what we did. We're rewarding the people who did well. Um, and, and I think, you know, I could go into a bunch of examples because this is a subject that gets me excited. But I think that uh, fairly successful sports and games and uh, you know, chess, of course, has, a, has an opening, a mid-game and an end-game they all kind of structure themselves around this way that a well-played game between people who are of equal skill will actually come out having a structure very similar to a commercially successful three-structure act story. Hmm. So, I mean, in 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 a way, then what you're describing, I mean, I'm just like the immediate thing that's that's trivial that i that i think of is oh well you've just explained why it's important uh why it's in fact crucial that uh sports um have like not base their uh why sports have their mvp um awards happen at the end of the season and not uh you know the middle of the season or like the beginning of the next season or something like that they have to be the end of the season Mm -hmm. um which, uh, you know, is probably not super interesting to everyone, but it is immediately interesting to me. Um, But the other thing I I think here is like, you know, the way you're describing games is almost like a, um, it's almost as like an excuse for storytelling, I guess, where like it's hard to tell stories and it it can be like really stressful and frustrating to tell a story. And um, effectively what games do here is they, they provide you with some, they provide you with some excuse or some some way to kind of be like, all right, I'm going to tell a story here. I'm going to enter into narrative without the you know the embarrassment of of doing that. Um, I don't know. Would would you say that that was accurate or is that a little simplistic or? No, I think that's that's completely correct. I think and, and I think it's it's a combination of embarrassment and just un you know I, I I hesitate to say unwillingness to do it by yourself because I think that. It's not a bad thing that we, we when we want to have a story told to us, we go to a game. Or when we want to tell a story to ourselves, we go to a game. Because, again, we're not great at it. Like, like <laughs> I come up with one or two good story a year, and I'm like, 
that's what I'm doing. That's your job. <laughs> that's my job. Um, so when I want to have a when I want to tell myself a story about a dragonborn fighting dragons, I'd much rather play Skyrim than trying to write it. And I think what Skyrim just as an example. It, it does is it gives me context, tools, and rules that mm. force me into sort of narrow paths of storytelling. Where Skyrim is not the, is far from the most narrow uh, storytelling game because you can make so, so many choices, but it does limit a certain amount of what you can do. Uh, and it also gives me the tools to like visually display it, uh, which I couldn't do ever because, you know, I am more of a writer than an artist. Mm. Yeah, I, I think like, you know, the other thing that that strikes me about that is, you know, the way you describe games and what you value in games, it, it, in some ways just so corresponds with, you know, with the value that is given in Skyrim, which is like, you know, Todd, Todd Howard, I, I, I someone was relaying a, a story where um, he was asked about, um, you know, like, he was talking about um, writing and like, and like how you write games or whatever. Um, and, and they were using it as like, I mean, he was, he was getting upset with uh, he was being all catty about uh, obsidian because obsidian announced a new fallout game. And um, you know, it was seen as kind of like disrespectful to Bethesda, I guess in his mind or whatever. Right. Like just, you know, petty, but um, this guy pointed out that Todd Howard's, uh, answer to how you write video games is uh, you need you need to have themes like themes are the really important thing and the theme he said that he thought about most while writing Skyrim was dragons <laughs> uh, which of course I, you know anyone would love that it's pretty funny, yeah. pretty funny yeah. to say that that's your theme um, but it's also like I mean the weird thing about that being your theme right is um, it's not entirely untrue that that is the theme of Skyrim um, and it also isn't entirely untrue that that makes for a bad that it makes for a good game because like you know it if the theme is something very vague like it has to be about dragons like you know that's not strictly speaking a theme uh, but insofar as it is not too far off it allows you the player to kind of I don't know live the game or or make the game your own thing like you get to as you say like you you're telling a story. You're, you're you're being given a framework. It's sort of like that classic um, Gary Gygax style of like, okay, I've given you the tools here. Now you go do it. Um, and that is kind of fascinating. That like that is a like that's something that has been. Um, let me let me put this a better way. It's something that comes up equally in visual novels and games like Skyrim. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and so so I'm of two minds about about the theme is dragons because on on such the a, surface such a good line. <laughs> on the surface, I just want to kind of just say everything whenever I make something, oh, the theme is dragons. Um and, and because <laughs> it's easy out. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, you know, the theme is is artisanal shelves. Uh deal with it. Um but the problem is I I, I I, I would like to give him the benefit of the doubt when he says the theme is dragons, because I think that there is a really great reading of the theme is dragons, which is, you know, I, 
guess what? If you really wanted me to say what the theme of my next game is, Crimson Spires, the theme is dragons. Um, <laughs> but not because there are dragons in it, but because it's about uh, the breakdown of the sort of you know, rational uh, rational world. Uh, we know we've had you know something like 400 or 500 years where we've thought everything be explained by science. Well, what if that suddenly stopped being true? Mm-hmm. Well, then the theme is kind of dragons. Yeah. It's, kind of the thing that's out there that we don't understand so so like i'm like oh no maybe i want to start saying the themes dragons even though there's not a single dragon in the game yeah i know that's, that's actually really cool because like you know i think it also there's also a um a way of understanding what he's saying that like it kind of challenges you to rethink what you know about the game like i mean to be like just so just so it's obvious just so it's clear there's a way of understanding what he's saying where it's just a hilarious thing that he doesn't know it <laughs> yeah for sure for sure that's one of the ways of understanding it and i don't want to take that away from anyone because it's very funny but um like there's a way of understanding it where you're saying yeah well the it, so what like the theme of the theme of the game is dragons well of course there's the dragon born and you want to say like well no that's not what he said he said the theme is dragons which is to say mm-hmm. like the character of the dragonborn then is not particularly important. They're just a, a, a means to an end, like a medium that helps you understand, you know, what dragons are effectively for lack yeah, of a better yeah. word. No, no, I agree. And, and I think uh, there's an, you you mentioned the whole Gary Gygax approach. And I think that that's really important to talk about, uh, especially since we're now on the Skyrim subject, uh, which is that, On some level, I believe, for better or worse, uh, single-player games are chasing a very specific experience, um, which is the experience of doing a tabletop RPG or game uh, with a very good DM. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And and because uh, this is true of Skyrim, this is true of Mass Effect, this is true of Dragon Age, which is the thing that you want the game to do as far as narrative development is respond to you in a way that is organic and natural. And you want it to respond to things that it would not expect you to do and then like give you positive feedback for it. Yeah. And that's incredibly hard. Uh, that's incredibly hard. Uh, well, and I, yeah. think it's- I mean, that's, that's why people get so frustrated with like even, even – or it's, it's why people try to make and then get so frustrated with games like Red Dead Redemption 2 where like the, the idea is – these characters are going to have such, and here's the word again, uh, such robust algorithms that like you won't be able to tell that they're not real, right? Like it will feel as if uh, you are talking to a real character. And what people want is the, is it not to be as if they want it to actually be a real person, a real character, a real second person that you have to interact with, which as you say, like technically is impossible. Um, socially is something that we have and it's called a dungeon master yeah and and i think that that's that's you know a a thing that that is going to be a sort of the this is the specter that haunts single player games (laughs) uh, which is that you can't design an algorithm or a system that will uh, accommodate things that it was not were not expected Mm mm-hmm um, you just can't because that's almost a tautology. You know, if if there was nothing coded in for this, there's not going to be a response to this that the system gives you back, um, and and that's unfortunate. But I and I I think that it's it's a thing that we have to think about as people who make single player games because 
that that sort of fosters the possibility of player disappointment mm. and um, and just audience disappointment. Like like if you're making a game where you make choices, if you're making a game where you make tactical decisions, if you do something that's off book uh, and the game just shuts you down, it's a bad feeling. Yeah, and and it sucks because of course the developer can't accommodate for everything uh but it's just an interesting thing that we have to think about as we design these games yeah it reminds me of i i talked about this a little bit when i was uh when i wrote about um uh, what's that game called the talus principle um and uh and gone home and uh you know the one thing i thought about the talus principle that was really interesting and and the talus principle is a fine game it's just basically a portal like but um which you you'll never know the difficulties of writing about video games in an academic context until you have to describe a game like the talus principle and you can't use the you you know constitutively cannot use the phrase portal like um <laughs> to describe it and then you're like oh now i have to explain what portal is and what game physics are and why that's interesting and oh geez i'm gonna I'm just going to sleep for a little while. <laughs> well, now I have to recode the source engine and yeah. <laughs> now I have to, now I have to spend 18 pages on Gary's mod. Like, eh, this, this is a nightmare. Um, Life was. Yeah. <laughs> but the, um, the, you know, like uh, the cool thing about the Talos principle, the interesting thing about the Talos principle is that it is a, it's a game that is premised on you being this like this robot uh living um the simulation world that a god has has made for you and the god has certain rules like you you aren't allowed to leave the world and and you have to like you have to not go near this particular tower and stuff like that which of course the main narrative of the game is to go near the tower and to realize like oh actually like turns out i was like an independent being this whole time and and that kind of thing but so so you're saying the game is about betraying god so it's a jrpg right basically no it's it's unfortunately not quite as interesting as a jrpg vis-a-vis betraying god um it's a little you know what i'll put it this way and this is this is a hot take it's a little more final fantasy 10 uh which is to say not as interesting than it is uh shin megami tensei which is to say very interesting Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. No. Now I'm also going to say that every theme of my game is not dragons, but betraying God. But go forward. <laughs> but the um, you know the the thing about the thing about Telos Principle is everything in the game. This is what's really interesting about it. Everything in the game is premised on this uh, this divine structure. And of course, like what you find out at the end of the game, it's not exactly a spoiler because it's been obvious the whole time. Like what you find out at the end of the game is the divine structure is not real. You're you've you've you're basically this uh, this last vestige of humanity um, after a virus has wiped us out and you the computer program are just kind of like trying to learn all of all you can about humanity via this this simulation that the the main, you know, architect of or the main sort of like mover of from a from a mechanical standpoint has become you know too powerful or or, you know too sentient and doesn't want to die and so they've made themselves god and and you kind of have to be like well look like i'm going to kill god so that i can leave this machine um so they're like a demiurge sort of thing yeah exactly um and so you know that's that's all well and good but the the idea of a closed system like that is fascinating to me like it's so interesting to, to to think through and one of the most interesting moments is um so when you die in talos you um you just rewind basically um which is to say like you 
everything you're seeing rewinds back to the moment you just like entered the puzzle. Uh, and so it, you know, you, wa- you get to like watch through your eyes as you die and then everything goes backwards and you're back at the beginning. So it's, it's sort of like a Prince of Persia style, but from a uh, first person perspective. Yeah. Um, and if you get too close to the edge of the map, um, and this is where it all ties back. I promise I didn't just talk about like a, a minor game for uh, five minutes for no reason. Um, <laughs> uh, when when you get to the edge of the map, it um, the god figure tells you like, you know, you have to go back. Like, please, you know, this is the edge of the world. Like, it's very dangerous here. Uh, you have to go back. You have to go back. And then once you get to the end, it kills you and you're, you're rewound back and you, you go backwards. And like that limiting is such a good descriptor of what it feels like when you reach the edge of a map like i always think about that and i think about pilot wings where all of a sudden it's just fog and you can't go any further and like you're just up against fog and it's like oh this is where the simulation breaks like it can't it can't handle what's happening here um it's impossible to like actually be a full world um and acknowledging that is so problematic for games yeah, like like for example, just to you know, because I'm I, I'm trying to self promote myself in some fashion. Please. Uh in, in our upcoming games, Crimson Spires, one of the mechanics that we have, we are actually doing a three D open world for the first time. It's about the size of a small Missouri city. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um but to have people go outside of it, you know, we that can't work. Um and one of our very early decisions about what this game was, a a thing that happens in the very first few minutes is these you know, towers rise up from the ground and they literally kill anybody who walks beyond mm. them and they surround the town. And as we develop this game, you know, how much we're ever going to reveal about these towers is in question, but that's just part of what this world is. Because like I said, the theme for this game is dragons, <laughs> which is to say the theme is what if towers just rise out of the ground and shot you when you walked past right. them? You know, what if there was something that we couldn't understand in the real world anymore? You know, and 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 so games like ours kind of have to work around this. Like, oh well, we're going to make a three D world that you explore. We have to have some kind of limiting thing, and that was part of our decision with that is to have this be one of the many mysteries of the world mm. in this game. I like that, um, and it, kinda, it it reminds me a little bit of a game like, um, or not a game, but like it, again, goes back to your point about like even games that explicitly have no narrative, having a kind of narrative, um, a game like Ark. Um, I don't know how much Ark you've played. Oh, yeah. But yeah. we're like... I've played, hmm? I've played some Ark. Yeah, I haven't played enough Ark. Um, my friend... Uh, I, I don't know. Do you know Ian? Do you know uh, Ian? Uh, what is Ian's last name? Why am I forgetting Ian's last name? Uh, he writes for Vice, uh, or writes for Waypoint a lot, um, just Warhammer stuff. Uh, he's on the Discord. Uh, oh, God. I'm sorry, Ian. If he's written Warhammer stuff for Vice, I've probably read yeah, him. Yeah, he's. Least. I mean, he's a great guy. He's um, he's very smart. He's a Brock Tune on uh, on Twitter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, I don't know why I'm forgetting his last name, but he's a he's a good friend of mine. He's been on the show, but um, he uh, he introduced me to it, and um, I you know he had like a whole server, and and you know he was basically like he had figured that game out by the time I got there, and it was just <laughs> it was baffling to me, but you know the cool thing about arc is that it's meant to be baffling like the the things that you find so confusing about arc or i find so confusing about arc are meant to be confusing for everyone which is to say like 
oh, like you're you're a human, but you're surrounded by dinosaurs and they're way, way more powerful than you. And also there's this mm-hmm. um there are these towers and uh sorry, I have no idea what they are. And uh <laughs> and like there's no good explanation as to why all of this is happening to you, but you do have to survive it. So uh, better get on that. Like that's a really, I think that's a really powerful way of storytelling in some ways. And something that's very hard to do as like, you know, television shows like lost have proven like very hard to do in, in traditional mediums, which is to say like, give someone a completely blank box and say like, okay, no answers, uh, make what you will of this. Um, so yeah, I, I could I could I could possibly start some more beef here which yes. is to say the big inspiration uh for for this next game and for a lot of the stuff that we do actually is the show The, the Leftovers. Okay, yeah. I was thinking about The Leftovers actually um, when I when I said that I I didn't watch it. I only watched like the first couple of episodes and I I lost interest, but um it's because I'm a, I'm an ingrate. <laughs> well, uh, the first season is not as good as the other two, but um, I will say what we really liked about it was that it is in some ways a response or reaction to some people's uh, dislike of how Lost ended, which was, oh, you explained everything and we hated it. And The Leftovers is, well, fuck you, we won't explain anything. And it doesn't. And and it, it has all this supernatural stuff in it that is very strange and very mysterious but it never really ever takes that step to say what this what what is physically happening. It's just like, you know, it. it I hate to say it, its theme is dragons. <laughs> its its theme is that that medieval map where you look at and you you see that spot on the sea where you say here there be right. dragons. And what they really mean is we don't know. Yeah, and like it it reminds me of I don't know if you ever I don't know how much uh, literary criticism you you did uh, in in screenwriting. Uh, you know, hopefully not very much. I can't imagine it would help uh, help you actually write things that people would want to read or or enjoy. Uh, it certainly hasn't helped me much. But um, <laughs> the um, you know one of the one of the best uh, critics I think of just like composition of like and by that I mean story composition, not the composition of of language, um, is uh, mm-hmm. Frank Kermode who wrote this book. Uh, not to be confused with the with the popular novel, uh, Sense of an Ending. And Sense mm-hmm. of an Ending is basically about this, basically about the problem of finishing uh, narratives. And like Kermode basically says like the, the, the true, the actual like crisis of the novel is that it can't come up with a good ending. Um, like it's, it's basically impossible to end your story. Um, you can do yeah. it in myth because like the, the moral is always like, well, and so we've proven why, uh, you know, the rain happens or whatever. <laughs> like it's not there. There are ways to solve myth. There are ways to end myth because myth solves things for you. Or there are ways to end poetry because poetry has a particular amount of lines or that. And so like the ambiguity is built in. But the novel is just like a story that exists as much the same as like a TV show or a movie in, in that you don't have a good ending because there's no real reason to end. Um it's, it's hard to come up with, like, why you're stopping the story here outside of, well, I just had to stop the story somewhere. So I picked right now. Yeah. 
Well, and that's like, why do you think we're still getting, you know, fucking Harry Potter movies and Star Wars movies is you can't, you know, there's almost no, we know as human beings that there's no end to a story. There's no like, oh, like when you say happily ever after, you mean a thing continues to happen. And that doesn't really ring true with anybody's experience. Um, so you, you have this issue where it's like, oh, well, you can always keep building off of it. Um, and I, and I think, you know, I think one of the, the things to give games a little credit here, which is, you know, a hard thing for me to do sometimes, um, is that when we talk about the stories that people make when they're playing a game, those do actually have an end. When we're talking about the fight between Ken and Ryu, or we're talking about the five people on one side of Summoner's Rift in League of Legends and the other five people inside of Summoner's Rift, that is a story that actually has an ending and a true, like, conclusion. And even though you can replay it and replay it and replay it with different characters and so on, I think that there is something very satisfying about both there being a conclusion and the fact that you as the player have affected mm. the conclusion, uh, which is something that is just not capable in any sort of in, in novels. Now, like you said, in, in poetry, certainly there is a way to conclude things. And in, um, you know, other forms of art, like in a, in a painting, there's only one frame to be seen. There's a beginning sure. and an end to that and how you look at it. Uh, but you're right that when you were talking about this narrative, and we're specifically talking about, a lot of times, the three-act narrative, which is so pervasive in, in novels, um, yes, there's a conclusion. Yes, there's a denouement. But life still goes on. Uh, guess what? Life does not still go on after you finish King's Row in Overwatch. Uh, yeah, it, it repeats itself. It's over. And that's a very satisfying thing to have happen, you know, as far as these sort of stories go. You know, even even when you talk about a single baseball game or a baseball season, once it's over, it's over and everything gets rebooted and there's no continuing on. There's there's a there's a like re reformation of what what the status quo is, um, which isn't true in novel. Yeah. And any and any lack of that is really is really like human imperfection, because like you get to that's actually very interesting because I've been I've been thinking about this a lot with the football season because of how good the team I follow did last year and how bad they are doing this year. And like one of the things about that is, yeah, okay. Like people, people will be like, well, they won the, you know, don't be mad. They won a championship. And it's part of me thinks like they're right. And then part of me thinks like, well, that's not fair. Like I want them to win another one. And that dissonance is something that's very interesting to me. And what I find most interesting about it is that, it points to it points to basically what you're saying, which is that there's no continuity between these seasons. They are they are individual moments, um, and to appreciate that would mean like I wouldn't so much care that the Eagles aren't doing very well this year. It doesn't matter. Uh, it's just another year. Like this is this one iteration of it, um, and I can't quite grasp that. You know, 2017 actually has nothing to do with 2018 mm -hmm. <laughs> in like epistemological and narrative ways. Um, and yeah, I mean, like, I think there's, that's true of many video games where like the, the question of like, okay, so what are we, what are we producing here? How are we, how are we understanding the narrative and how does it relate to me as a person or a player or whatever? Um, it's hard to imagine that, you know, it doesn't, it's just a, we've produced a single moment in time and that's what's interesting about it. Yeah, that's what's really kind of cool to me about competitive games is that they, 
you know, they produce these individual, like almost snapshot narratives that stand alone and can't be followed up on. Just they, you, unless you happen to match, you know, match, for example, in League or Hots or Dota with the exact same nine people, you are never going to mm-hmm. follow up on that narrative. It's done. It's complete. Um, and and you know, with with sports, I think that it's really hard for us to square that out because. Um, we, we do see players go from one year to another. We follow their careers as well as we follow, you know, the, the individual seasons. And we, we, you know, try and mitigate this think of thinking with like this whole idea of flags fly forever is, you know, no matter what it took to get that championship, you got that championship and that is never going to be taken away from your team. But then, you know, like you said, with the Eagles, and this is something that I experienced with the Cardinals in 2007, for example, like this was a team won a championship and then they signed Braden Looper to be a starting pitcher like it was mind blowing like you guys are world champions what are you doing and the, the, what they were doing was they were saving money because it's a business as well and fuck capitalism and all that but that was like a very strange experience but I was like oh flags fly forever at least we won the 2006 um and I think that that's sort of the way that we as sports fans mitigate this whole idea of continuity is we say, oh, no, we do actually section off these seasons as individual things. Um, I mean, on the other hand, though, there's no there's no real um, I mean, it's, it's one thing to say it's one thing to point this out. And, and you know, it totally seems true to me that that you're you know, you, you're right. Um, this is this is how it all works and 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 all. But it's another thing to say, uh, you know. Braden Looper as a starting pitcher and having to actually like um, somehow somehow you know deal with that. Um, I think it's totally fair that you had a hard time dealing with that. Um, I can't imagine coming to terms with it. Oh no, absolutely. That's the thing. Is this, this is my long <laughs> joke about Braden Looper. <laughs> if, I, if I stumbled into a Braden Looper running joke here, you know, no, no, I wish that would be that would be an amazing running joke. <laughs> Yeah. What, a, yeah. what, a, what a triumph <laughs> but yeah. no no i just I, th- I just think Braden looper is a hilarious person to sign as a i mean it's like it's like signing i don't know it's basically like signing ben sheets except ben sheets was good at some point yeah yeah or or you know signing miles Mikolas, the guy from japan who went off and then became a good starting pitch for the cardinals which that worked yeah. i guess um but yeah no i think i think that there is this very interesting um the self-contained narrative that is capable in games that I, that you know obviously other art forms are capable of, but when you're talking about narrative specifically, uh, novels and films, uh, games are really good about like sort of cutting things off. Um, of course, until fans get a hold of stuff and and have their own demands. Well, then I mean I guess one thing I'd ask is like, what do you think about about like DLC? Because DLC is sort of the the renunciation of that the the the, the way of saying like actually. No, don't leave. There's more. <laughs> yeah, well, here's it's DLC is a really interesting topic, and and patching is probably more interesting to me. Um, DLC would yeah, yeah, be yeah. like, oh well, I wrote this novel. Uh, you know, George R. R. Martin, you know, writes the 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 Song of Ice and Fire novels, and the, but he also occasionally throws out theoretically. These other, yeah, theoretically, theoretically, he's still writing those, uh, but occasionally he throws out these short stories or these side things, and those are kind of what DLC feels like to me. It's like, oh, here's another thing in this world. Yeah, yeah. Patching is a little bit more interesting because it's something that is just simply not a thing. 
in other medium. Um, like, okay. So, so obviously there's like director's cuts on DVDs and that's a very similar concept where you're like, Oh, mm. we're changing what the story is because the director didn't like it or the studio didn't like it or didn't make money. Um, but other than that, I think of director's cuts and I think of the 1980s clue film. Um, have you ever seen that? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. The, um, with uh, Tim Curry. Yeah, right? yeah. It has multiple endings and, yeah. and each, and in the theatrical version, uh, each version only had one ending. So you would go to the theater and you could potentially see a different ending depending on what it was. And that was the canon ending. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and that's a really cool idea. Uh, but ultimately, when it came to home video, and they attached all three endings or four endings or whatever it was—I don't know if it was three or four—that um, was even cooler because it was this. It became a joke. It became part of the joke that they were doing. That oh, there's these possible endings to it. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. And like you know, the I I, re, I recall that I recall it being funny that way because of course like. You know, the the gag being that, like, Clue itself kind of runs that way. Yeah. And <laughs> it's always someone different. And, of course, this is a game. This was a, a movie based on a game. It's it's sort of similar to what we're talking about, like how, how there can be these divesting narratives and that this movie almost kind of subsumed this idea. Um, my, my point sort of was that that no other medium can really patch the end like a Mass Effect 3 did or a few other games have done where they say, oh, people didn't like this ending. We can fix this. And I think mm-hmm. there's a, there's, this is a double-edged sword, and I know that you, you've you talked about this before on, on this podcast. I've heard you. It was great. Uh, <laughs> uh, but wow. Bold of you to admit that you listen to the podcast. This is not <laughs> going to do well for your, for your career. <laughs> but, but... Uh, I, I think that, that it makes games a really interesting medium that you can do this now. And you couldn't always do this. Uh, but it, oh, it, No, of course not. It, it adds to – like I think of removing uh, – I, I think of, of you know changing the, the voice actor in Destiny, for example. Um, oh, well, the, the, the fact that Fillion didn't do the uh... – the the forsaken uh, voice of um, what's his name uh, Cade. Well, there was that was the second one, but the first one was the guy from Game of Thrones d- uh, got taken off of your little partner, and I can't remember his name. Um, uh, the the the, um, the Tyrion ghost, or... ghost, yeah, Tyrion, the actor who played Tyrion, whose name I cannot remember off the top of my head. Tyrion Lannister played the ghost, and then uh, a year later he was replaced by another voice actor, a professional voice actor. Um, and that content is gone. You cannot play Destiny with Tyrion Lannister as your ghost anymore, and I still feel really bad that I don't remember his name. If you hear typing, it is because I need to fix this. Peter Dinklage. Peter Dinklage. Yeah, Peter Dinklage. So why did they replace him? Was, he, was it not good? That's an open question. Um, on some okay. level, it was not good. Um, he is responsible for the infamous "This wizard came from the moon" uh, line <laughs> that was in the demo, but was then stripped from the full game. Which I I still protest to this day because I believe "This wizard came from the moon" is basically saying the theme of this game is dragons. 
I like that a lot. I like the, this wizard came from the moon. I think it is absolutely true of destiny that the wizard came from the moon, <laughs> and I will fight for it. So he gave a very disaffective performance um, that I think is either explained by the fact that he did not care about this game or that he was playing a robot. And I don't know the answer to either one, uh, but I, I, when I went back in after the first year patch and they'd they'd patched him out in, in, in favor of the guy who plays Nathan Drake, who I can't remember either. Um, it was not the same. There was some sort of like, it, it was interesting that Peter Dinklage was sitting here and just like kind of phoning this in as this robot because a robot would phone in their lines. You know, they wouldn't <laughs> add that expression. Like, I don't know whether he was phoning it in or he was going for a thing, but I, right. I liked it. Uh, my my point being that that that's gone. That 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 version of Destiny is unplay. You can't play that version of Destiny. You can't have that experience anymore. Which is something that is almost exclusively unique to video games. That sort of well, it reminds me a little bit. It reminds me a little bit of um, of uh, Final Fantasy fourteen, where like they basically at one point were like, okay, uh, do overtime. Uh, we didn't do a good job. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that game that you guys all played, uh, it's it's done now. No one can ever play it again. Yeah, there's this uh, possibly apocryphal story about Hideo Kojima wanting to make a game that self-destructs after you play it once. And mm, I've, I've heard the story, yeah. Is it true? I don't know. That seems like the sort of thing that somebody would make up on a message board. Uh, the, guy, I, the guy is pretty into weird stuff like that. Oh, I will say that. I believe it. I'm just saying I don't know if it's true. Um, but that's the this, that's this sort of thing that patching lets you maybe do is is have this very interesting like limited experience but then again get people get mad about that because you know they're consumers and they bought something and and you know that's just how things are right sure i mean the 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 other thing about it is like there is i'm trying to think of the way to say this there's a there's a uh, you know there's a correspondence with impermanence and conceptual art too where like William Gibson made a poem that uh on a disc and it was like it's considered one of the I mean like a floppy disc and it's considered one of the the earliest versions of like digital art um and the poem just it basically does what Kojima wanted to do it self-destructs um you it, it erases the disc after you're after you're reading it um and it's not really as profound as I bet Gibson thought it would be right. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's all right. Like, okay, I get what you're doing here. Um, but there's something that's just like not words and, and stories don't work the same way as images do. Right. There's also, there's a, a, an artist that I'm not going to remember his name, but uh, I, my, my, my advisors, a couple of my advisors uh, on my dissertation, uh, Walter Michaels and Jennifer Ashton, um, like sort of wrote on his work a little bit, Walter especially. Um, and his deal is he he produces polar he produces pictures on this stock that once it's like uh, defective stock. Um, mm-hmm. and once it hits the light, it degrades instantly. So like within an hour of unveiling the picture to a gallery, it's um, just a gray um, mass. It's just it's a it's a a, a, a overexposed piece you can't see anything yeah um what walter pointed out was like and he's right is like the the piece isn't actually the experience of watching the thing go away the piece is what you get afterwards where it used to be a picture and now it isn't Mm 
and like that sort of like lack and potentiality and you know whatever that's what the art is um and that works because it's a picture right but mm-hmm. stories don't work that way because you can always describe a story and it is more or less there with you unless you're like unless you're trying to do a thing where it's like oh only this person could tell it or only that person could tell it stories are meant to be transmitted so like i think in some ways that impermanence of video games could never really take the same way oh yeah for sure um but i think i think that there's especially when we were talking about you know especially uh, multiplayer games things like that that there is something to be said about the impermanence of the story that is told in an individual experience with the game um so for example a league of legends match or a street fighter match or something that yes you can record that and you can show it to other people and they will have a certain experience with it but they will never have the experience of playing that match because when you're playing a League of Legends match or you're playing a Street Fighter match or you're playing a tennis match or you're playing a chess match, you're not just experiencing the story. You're telling it. You are one of the storytellers of it. And you are collaborating with your opponent to tell a story of this match. And that's an experience that can't be replicated. Mm. You can always show it to other people, but you can't replicate the part where you're in it and where you're making the decisions of it. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, definitely. I think the other, you know, the other thing that's really cool is uh, thinking about uh, how like spectating works that way, where like uh, competitive gaming is the only thing that's sort of similar to sports in this way, where like the spectator has a privileged position that um, is not always the case with other games. Like, you know, there's streaming and all that, which which kind of throws a wrench in it but yeah i mean there are let's plays of video games and stuff like that and you can record and you can retell but being at like and i mean like this was my case when i went to combo breaker this year and and finally saw some competitive gaming in person um like being there and watching it happen and living with the sort of like um the the very suspenseful for lack of a better word uh feelings that come up when you're watching these games i you know like that's something you can't replicate even in a playback because you know who's going to win it's the it's the old like jerry seinfeld thing of uh or the old seinfeld thing of like taping the game but making sure no one ever tells you what happens (laughs) yeah no definitely and i i think that you're 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 keying into the the competitive sports and let's play things as being very similar is really a good point because, you know, I was kind of positing, you know, in my 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 trying to be extreme and, and start a beef way, that, <laughs> that all game design is in some you way. Were so, you were so combative too. Oh That's... yeah, yeah, yeah. I just went like like fuck everybody who disagrees with me. It's like I have to cut out so much. This is like, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. I I I was using some some words that didn't exist before tonight, and yeah. I don't know who their slurs against, but I don't think they're going to be very <laughs> yeah, so you're, you're, you're hearing me and you're like, I don't know who, who that's insulting, but I don't think I can let that go through. Um, <laughs> Censors are going to be all over this. <laughs> uh, but but uh, to, to, to draw out the sort of extreme way of looking at this, uh, a baseball game is in, in some way uh, a way for about you know 25 people and then another 25 people to all get together and very under very extreme rules and very harsh context uh tell a story about two groups fighting each other 
Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. And like, they, they, there's all these rules and all these stories and, and all these con- this context and all these like tools, like the baseball, the bat, everything like that. Because if you normally got, you know, 25 dudes together and then you met them up with another 25 dudes and you said, I need you to tell a story about y'all fighting each other. Uh, things are going to go bad real fast. But yeah, you're you not going to like the story you get. No, it's it's it, it, <laughs> it's going to be Calvin Ball. At worst, it's going to be like the Bundy Ranch. Um, <laughs> and and uh, but baseball gives these rules that let these people tell these stories to each other and to a wide audience. What I think Let's Plays do, and and Twitch streaming to some ex- you know to some extent as well, is they open up the experience of a single player or a couple players, if it's a co-op game, um, telling the story of the game to themselves, but letting other people watch. And I think people really like that. And I think that's why Twitch streaming has gone on so well. That's a really interesting way to think about why Twitch streaming works. Like I've, I've never, I've never been able to understand it. This is a running, a running problem for me that I don't understand why Twitch streaming is, um, enjoyable, uh, especially a running problem when I try to Twitch stream. And I don't really understand why anyone would enjoy that. <laughs> like, it's like, well, that's <laughs> not going to go well for you then. But um, yeah, I mean, like, that is a really good way of thinking about it, where, like, basically you get to be part of, you get to sort of, like, watch the story be made. And even if yeah. you yourself are not part of that story, it doesn't so much matter. Yeah. Well, it, before it, we run, we run well, out of time, I want to get to Hitman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I, you know, I was actually going to just say real quick, um, the story that immediately comes to mind for me is, um, and when you talk baseball that way, is uh, is I was at the uh, the fateful uh, Cardinals Phillies game where uh, a guy got tased. Oh, yeah. I was I was at that game. I was in center field. Uh, I was that was me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a uh, boy. Yeah, you know what. That's okay. We'll I'll, I'll, we'll tell the story off air. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I, I know you're kidding. I know that's what <laughs> Look, I, you don't know how, how many times I've been tased at a baseball game. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it could be you. I, I you know, I, I'm making a lot of assumptions here that I shouldn't be making. But the, you know, like the the guy who got tased was like a fairly just like a fan who ran on the field and he got tased, and it was in the middle of like this fairly dull pitchers duel i think it was like a you know a two three game or something like that in the seventh and of course we were in center field which is the worst place uh in some ways to watch a pitcher's duel especially if it's like deep center field watching watching the outfielders all do different positions and stuff like that um but uh that was that was a different story that happened all of a sudden and and all of a sudden like the rules of the story were broken and we were doing something totally different um that was something Anyway, Hitman. Yeah. Tell me about Hitman. It went, it went from it went from play baseball to taste the idiot. So uh, uh, very yes. different stories. Exactly uh, t- right. Not not a sport you're, I'm used to. <laughs> <laughs> the the primary theme of my games is dragons. The secondary theme is taste the idiot. <laughs> I don't know I know why you're not famous yet, but I'm pretty sure it's going to come soon. <laughs> <laughs> so hitman um which also could say the theme is tase the idiot uh <laughs> one of the things that i think that hitman does really well this is modern hitman the first the latest two games and i think uh, blood money and hitman 2 also kind of got into this we're, we're taking a heavy left turn here and i'm sorry about that okay. um is uh, I, I talked about how single player games often chase 
the the dream of the good dungeon master is the the person or the in this case algorithm or program that responds to your actions as no matter how unpredictable in a way that is satisfying i think hitman and especially the latest hitman games are so good at that um that's the whole point right like it's it's basically just like you are given a bevy of tools to (laughs) to kill this to kill a person and like it really is just like have fun with it just figure something out (laughs) Yeah, and like and like, I don't watch a lot of streaming myself. Um, I, I occasionally watch some people play some League or some Heroes of the Storm because it's you know good to have in the background. But um, like the Giant Bomb, the Hitman uh, episodes are always entertaining, and the reason is because we're basically watching you know these internet personalities that are really you know entertaining uh, tell themselves stories via Hitman uh, because oh interesting Hitman gets wild and. Um, it's really fun to watch that. It's fun to watch people play Hitman. And I think that, that the same thing sort of comes up with like Fortnite uh, or any other in the other game where there is so much freedom to do things and do things wrong and do things weird. Yeah. Um, I, the, the reason that I, I always – a really I, good I, way of explaining why Fortnite's so mm, excuse me, successful, by the way, that like it, it gives you a lot of opportunity to do things wrong. Um, and I think like wrong in that case being like – a lot of times ending up with people getting amazing kills and stuff like that. Absolutely. And I think you talked about how, uh, you know, it's, it's a little elusive why watching Twitch is is appealing. Um, and, but I think there's a comparison to be made with Dungeons & Dragons podcasts or mm. um, uh, tabletop role-playing play, like role games, not just D&D. You know, there's Critical Role, there's, um, there's Friends at the Table, things like that. It's not just Dungeons & Dragons. It's sometimes Dungeon World. It's other games. But... Those are a bunch of people whose personality that you like uh, sitting around basically using the rules of this game to tell each other a story. Um, and, and if they're good at it, if they're good storytellers, it's basically like a serial. It's like a Welcome to Night Vale. It's the same mm. sort of idea because this is storytelling, but there it's directed by the system and by the DM. Um, to bring this back to Hitman, uh, the, the biggest example i can think of this is one of the coolest things about hitman is that sometimes you can get yourself into the a weird position in the game and just like straight up take a silenced pistol shot at your target and get away with it <laughs> like you just get lucky because you duck behind the the cover just in time or they turn around or the guard turns around just in time and you know, you still have to run. You still have to get everything done. But it worked. The stupid thing that you did worked. And immediately, what that makes me think of is in Dungeons and Dragons when you go and you're like, "I'm going to make a shot at this enemy," and it's the stupidest thing in the world. And your dungeon master is like, "No, don't do that." And then you roll a natural twenty, and your dungeon master kind of has to let you get away with it. Yeah, like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit this. Uh, I'm gonna attack the uh, the beholder with my dagger, and uh, and you somehow, you somehow win. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think Hitman is one of the few games that 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 its systems, intentionally or not, and I, clearly some of it's intentional, but some of it is a little bit of like, you know, large world jank. Yeah. Um, 
some of it is just like, oh, you get away with this because the vision cone was not at the right spot at the right time. But the feel of it is it gets that like, oh, man, I should not have gotten away with that. I should not have been able to just kill that person from behind this crate. But it feels so good, which is something that is really hard to do in other games that aren't so responsive to players basically being fuck ups and getting away with it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think like there's I've noticed this in games where like, I, you know, for whatever reason, this year has been very good for um, for like retro 2D platformers. Um, I don't mm. I don't know why. I don't know what it is about this year that uh, got in the water. Um, but in those, like, there are ways to screw up and, and beat a puzzle or beat like a certain kind of like uh, condition in the game by like just kind of messing up and, and hitting, you know, the wrong thing or whatever and, and kind of like lucking out. And for whatever reason, that is not appealing to me at all. Like, I, I don't like it. <laughs> I've never enjoyed it. I've never been like, ah, oh, sweet. I, I like I, I totally I totally like nailed that, even though I didn't do it the way they wanted me to. But like hmm. with something like Hitman, I totally get it where it's like, OK, it's really fun to be able to do that in a world where it's like, OK, um, anything can happen in this world. It is not meticulously designed. It, it is meticulously designed, but not with an outcome in mind. Um, so here's a Rube Goldberg machine, have fun with it and do whatever you want with it. And, uh, and we'll see what happens. And, uh, and that's very cool. Like I, that makes me want to boot it up like the instant we get off the phone here. Yeah, (laughs) no, no, I've been playing a lot of that. Like, and it's, it's similar to me. Like I, uh, dark souls, the shooting, the Drake in the tail a bunch of times with the bow for like 15 minutes. That's not necessarily appealing to me because it's sort of like, oh, well, I'm not playing this game in a way that's intended and there's not really something interesting about what I did here. What's interesting about Hitman, like I said, is, oh, well, I decided to throw this wrench at this guy and it killed him and somehow nobody saw me. Maybe they should have seen me, but they didn't. And I'm just going to walk away from this and feel good about myself. Um, that's like, and because, because they, because the, the enemies are all panicking, they realized somebody threw a wrench and they're all running around looking for you. And if you're, you then can move around and do the right thing. Uh, you get away with it and you just walk away. Like, you know, nobody's touching you. Like, oh, um, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, hey, hey, is it something, something happening? Yeah. It's a, uh, funny, uh. <laughs> I'm here to model my bald wigs and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, yeah. I think that that's, that's sort of where I come at why I think Hitman and Hitman 2 are so good is, is they, they capture this very interesting, like balance Mm. of, of ridiculous wildness, but also intentionality, you know, yes, sometimes you get away with things you should not get away with, but most of the time, there's a sense to it. There's a, you know, again, it, it feels, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like you're cheating. It feels like you rolled a natural 20. And that's, I, mean, and I think that, that's cool. That's the way I think we can tie it back to the rest, which is like when you're telling a good story or when a good story is told to you, it's not a matter of getting away with something, even if it becomes, you know, uh, something un, something unlikely happens or something strange happens or whatever it's not about getting away with something ever. That's just not how stories work. It's just, it's something unlikely happened. Um, and in Hitman, you're, it's a story. Like basically you're, you're absolutely right. It's like a version of a story that you're, you're kind of writing as the level goes on. Cause it's such a massive mm-hmm. level and such a, 
such a tricky way to, I don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's such a, it's such a, I'm trying to find the best way to say this, but I think you know what I mean. Like it's, it's such a intricate. Yeah, that's right. Like it's such an intricate little puzzle box that um, it becomes impossible to legislate and by being impossible to legislate much more fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. That that definitely makes sense to me, and I think I th- I, I, I and I, again I've tended to sort of scale that lesson back to all sorts of games, and just say that ultimately, so many games are either puzzle boxes or rule boxes or a series of context that we can all use that players use to sort of create narratives in each individual session, whether it's oh you know. 50 hours of Dragon Age or one minute of Pong. Those are still like stories about how two people, you know, got into a conflict or how a person got into a conflict with, you know, some demon Mm. or dragons, or maybe it's just all about dragons. It's just the the theme theme is dragons. Yeah. The theme is dragons. I think we have the episode title. (laughs) I think think we do. I think for for sure. we do. Uh, Well, Malcolm, thank you for coming on. I, I feel like I've kept you way too long, but this has been wonderful. Um, we didn't even talk about your next game, so uh, why don't we, uh, in 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 ending the episode, you're, why don't you plug it? Tell us about the game. Tell us what when when you think it might be coming out. Tell us, of course, where we can get it, where we can uh, help support you and 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 your company and and your partner and all the good stuff going on. Cool. Uh, our next game is Crimson Spires. It is a mix between a late 90s PS1, PS2 horror game and an Atome visual novel. So it is both a dating sim and a Silent Hill kind of game. Uh, if that sounds strange to you, good, because that means that it sounds intriguing to you. Do we, do uh, we get is, to date Pyramid Head? I'm not gonna. You're not gonna promise anything. <laughs> you you get you know you get to date a serial killer. How's that? Oh wow, that's uh, that's compelling. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and and uh, it will be out in probably early mid not 2019 on PC and then later on on other platforms. Um, it will. Uh, it's sort of a big open world game as well, which is going to be a big hassle for us. But hey, let's do it. Um, you can you can support us uh, by going to our Patreon at patreon.com slash woodsy underscore studio. It's an underscore because we're a big fan of Snake Case. Uh, and yeah, and follow us on Twitter at Woodsy Studio if you're just interested in what we're up to. Um, nice. Uh, basically, yeah, we've got all sorts of games. We've got lots of games. Are you uh, on, like, it, can people find them on Steam, Itch? Steam, Itch. Uh, uh, Echoes of the Fae is on PS4 and Xbox One. We have games everywhere you would want to have games. Um, our latest is Miracle, which is a game in which you 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 basically date the uh, um, the Archangel of Heaven okay. in a Slack like workplace app. Hmm. So if you want to have a game where you chat in real time uh, over a week with archangels and flirt with them yeah that's 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 up there Uh, that's on on steam and ios and android oh yeah it's totally stressful uh one of the paths is you have to reopen the howard johnson's uh restaurant line and you know that's incredibly stressful yeah i mean yeah i don't how do you (laughs) how do you how do you make that happen like i can't i can't imagine it being very easy 
first you have to to get in good with with one of the angels and then you have to you know source the uh the fried clams from the right right places and stuff (laughs) well i i i am going to be playing all of your games now um Awesome. Malcolm, thank you again. Uh, follow Malcolm Redbird Menace on Twitter um, and, you know, uh, at all of the various places he just said. And um, yeah, please come back again. Uh, when when the game comes out, we would love to talk with you about it. Awesome. Then that then I'll be able to get into more of the the, the fact that it's all a big critique of capitalism and how lead miners destroyed southern Missouri. So cool. Nice. Well, I didn't know that about southern Missouri. <laughs> Uh, yeah, let me tell you about Southern Missouri. <laughs> the, first, the first 12 hour episode. Um, yeah. <laughs> they have piles of lead chat just like lying around poisoning people. I'll, I'll just shut up. Wow. Well, you know, maybe they deserve the Cardinals then. Maybe maybe that, that bit of success is good. That and the greatest show <laughs> the of people. At least they have Paul Goldschmidt now for a year. There you go. Maybe more. You never know what he, what, what kind of extension he'll sign. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he will like Provel cheese and toasted ravioli. Who's to say? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, thanks again, man. And uh, and yeah, come back, come back, come back when your game's out. We would love to. We would love to talk to you more. Yeah, great to talk to you later. Okay.